El futuro tiene nada más que la confrontación. Hey, welcome to Unpopular Opinion. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. I used to write a bunch of weekly columns for a bunch of internet places, and I would use those columns to put forth all sorts of crazy opinions. Then, I would come on this show to defend those opinions. But now, whatever, I sort of do the same thing. Joining me today, he is the host of a fantastic podcast called Ghoul School, a horror movie history podcast that you can hear right here on the Unpops Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, Andy Sell. Also joining me, he is one of the co-hosts of this very podcast that you're listening to right now. He's also the co-host of a fantastic podcast called You Don't Even Like Sports, which is about how Jeff doesn't even like sports. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking about myself, Adam Todd Brown. It's going to be a great show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Unpopular Opinion. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. Joining me as co-host today, my favorite co-host of all, myself. But I do have a guest. Andy Sell is here. Andy! How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. You don't want to match my enthusiasm? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Hold on. Ask me again. Andy! How's it going? Oh, I'm pretty good, Adam. How are you? I'm great. Can you maintain that enthusiasm the entire episode? Absolutely not. That is the question. <laughs> I actually... Uh, absolutely not. I kind of teased this episode on another Unpops a couple weeks ago. And when I did that, I said, this episode would be our next episode. And here's the thing. It was not. It was not. It was not. But it is now. Yeah. Yeah. It is now. Hey, now it is. So now it is. Who's it, counting? We're We're talking about COVID as everyone is right now but also yeah, what a fun what a fun topic it's so much fun and specifically we're talking about covid and its impact on horror movies and here's the thing about andy sell i Never believe you know more about horror <laughs> movies than anyone in the world that's not even close to true. Are you I, sure? I Look, I, we haven't met in a while to like, you know, to do the contest. <laughs> We've never met. That's <laughs> no, the weird no, thing mean, about I, all of this. I mean, me and the other horror movie <laughs> people of the world, we haven't had our tournament in a minute. So it's hard to say who's ranked in the top right now without an official tourney. And, you know, I don't know where I am in the bracket right now. So maybe I'm elite eight. I don't know. Sweet 16, at least. If I was a betting man, I would put my money on you in that tournament. So, Well, it's a good thing you're not a betting man then. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that could be. You could massively let me down. One time in one of the horror trivias I play, in final exam horror trivia, I was in the top 10, I think. Or no, I was number 11 when all was said and done. That's I feel like good. you could do better. If I applied myself, I'm sure I could do better. Yeah, there was one of the articles we're going to talk about on this episode. The whole time I was reading it, I was like, Andy could tell me this off the top of his head. Are you talking about the Time yeah. Magazine article? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. oh, and they got a number of things wrong, too. Is the <laughs> While reading that article, I was definitely a few times I was like, OK, nope, nope, 
No. <laughs> like, like get, I want a red pen. Give me my red pen. If people don't know, Andy hosts a podcast on this network called Ghoul School, which is about the history of horror movies. I would argue it's one of the better podcasts on the network. Thank you. Thank you. When I can talk Andy into actually doing it. But we're on a streak. (laughs) We are. We are on a streak. And I'm (laughs) telling you, look, the finale of the found footage season is on its way. I have (laughs) done the thing that they teach you to do in second grade when you have ADD. And I've started breaking it down into pieces. So it's going to be a at least two part, potentially three part finale for the found footage season but the next proper found footage season episode is on its way very nice i have started recording it (laughs) (laughs) it'll be out soon everybody yeah look for that in 2023 just in time for covid 23b to hit go listen to it because as you'll learn in this episode andy is very knowledgeable about horror movies and i love horror movies it's my favorite genre but if me and andy we're competing on like horror movie trivia. I would just leave. Like I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't actually try to beat Andy Sell at horror movie trivia. That would be insane. Well, so we're going to talk about horror movies and how COVID has impacted them. And one of the first things I want to talk about is an article I found that said horror movie fans were better prepared for the pandemic. Andy, do you feel like you were better prepared for the pandemic than most people? Honestly, I don't know. That's one of those things where it's like, right now, sure. You know, or even three months into the... I will say that early on in the pandemic, maybe first five months, maybe a little bit on the other side of that, I was definitely one of those people who was like, well, this isn't that much of a change for me because I had already been staying home. But also, I don't know if that's because I'm a horror movie fan or if because I you know, have anxiety and depression anyway. Right. So none of the new feelings that were new to some people that were not new to me. I don't know if it's because I had stopped going out entirely anyway and I was just used to being at home with the cat. I think there is something to be said for being a horror fan and being a little more the article that we're going to talk about is i think dead on in a lot of sense here yeah and i also just horror fans were used to just sitting around watching movies all the time yeah that's the thing i'm a horror movie fan and i feel like i've handled the pandemic really well Mm -hmm. i just don't know if those two things are connected yeah it's hard to say if there's a causality there or not I'm skeptical. I also think that maybe it's one of those things where, you know, maybe we internalize it in a different way. And maybe in 12 years, we'll find out we're even more fucked up than other people because of it. Who knows? Yeah. It's hard to say right now. Yeah, that'll be the next article. If you handled COVID well, call your doctor. Yeah, you're a psychopath. (laughs) (laughs) That could very well be also. Which is great. Like horror fans need more stigma. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what we need. This article came about because of a study that came out in January 2021. And according to research published in the journal Personality and Individual Differences, use code UNPOPS at checkout to save 15% on your subscription, (laughs) uh, fans of apocalyptic horror films were better prepared mentally to deal with the pandemic. They reported fewer symptoms of depression, of anxiety, or sleeplessness. And those are all things that went way up among the general population. And as a horror fan, I agree with that for about five months. Like around Mm -hmm. August, I was like, as a horror fan, 
I'm going to murder everyone in my house if I don't go somewhere. <laughs> Again, this was January 2021. So this is even without the last four months of hindsight, you yeah. know? And I think even by January, I was already in a, a different headspace. I, I will say this. I know that early on in the pandemic, a lot of people were watching movies like Outbreak and, you know, other pandemic-related thrillers. And that's a thing I could not do. And I'm sure we'll get to that because I'm also not ready for movies about COVID, but I couldn't, I was counter programming. You know what I mean? I was watching yeah. like universal monster movies and things of a more fantastic nature. <laughs> yeah. The, I focused a lot on, I mean, there was that Chicago Bulls documentary that yeah. they put out right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I was way, way into that. But yeah, I just feel like I missed a lot of horror stuff early in 2020 just because there was horror happening all around me. And I want to clarify, I never actually thought about murdering the people in my house. Angie, I love you. Winter, <laughs> I love you. But I did feel like I needed to get out of the house. I wasn't yeah. going to murder anyone, but I ended up like renting an office and working out of there for a few months. And then I gave that up. But yeah, I agree with the premise of this article again for a couple months. But after a while, I was like, hmm. I'm going crazy like everyone else. Well, there's also something to be said because, okay, one of the things the article brings up is that fictional stories mentally prepare us for real life challenges. Right. And that may be true, but I also think there's an exhaustion point there. And I think that that's true of just about anything. Like there's a point where being prepared doesn't matter and it bottoms out. There's also something to be said for the idea of why we watch horror movies and the reasons are different for different people, I think, sometimes. Like I'm one of those people that horror gives my anxiety something to play with. It distracts my anxiety. So I'm not thinking about real world horror because it's concentrated on this sort of harmless horror. And right. I think that comes into play too. There's a really good book called Scream by Margie Kerr that explores the idea of like the social science of fear and why we watch horror movies, why we go to haunted houses, why we go onto roller coasters. And it's it has a lot to do with neurochemistry and this idea of the fight or flight or freeze survival circuit that exists in us. But you switch that back and forth enough and it gets exhausted. And you even get to a point where it's like, it doesn't matter that I've watched apocalyptic horror movies and I know what to expect here. I'm this is too much. Yeah, and it can only work to a certain point because apocalyptic horror movies are generally not based in reality. Like, <laughs> a zombie apocalypse yeah. can never happen. There are so many reasons why a zombie apocalypse could never happen. But this apocalypse could happen. Yeah, well, that's and, the thing. It turns out it's more mundane, so it's not as cool. And we're going to talk about some specific COVID-based horror movies in a little while. But what I loved about Host, which I think is the only good one, mm -hmm. is COVID was happening at the time, but it's the only movie that doesn't try to make COVID scarier than it is, like in this moment right now. The other movies are all about, well, here's what's happening in four years and mm -hmm. COVID is a real nightmare. And it's like, I don't want to fucking hear that right now. Yeah. Well, and one of them too, we'll, we'll get to it, but <laughs> They're one so of them bad. too does another thing that I'm like, I don't ever want to see that again. We'll, we'll get to it. But yeah, I agree. It's horror always works better when the thing that it's really talking about is more of a backdrop or, you know, a world building element as opposed to the subject of it. You know, it's if, if you're trying to say something with an analogy, 
the analogy works. You don't have to also include the proper noun. Right. You don't have to point to the thing you're talking about exactly and say, hey, look, because you know that's what documentaries are for. Yeah. One of the other things this article pointed out is even if you're not a horror movie fan, if you were just a person who engages in morbid curiosities like true crime or things like that, those people also kind of thrived during COVID and they didn't just experience fewer symptoms of anxiety and depression. They were able to find like ways to enjoy life during COVID. And I feel like me and you might be on the same page there because I've said it before. I hate all the dying. I hate the financial ramifications. I hate that it is impacting communities of color more than anyone else. I hate that the government's not helping yeah but in either camp all this stuff where staying at home and not seeing people is socially acceptable i'm like yeah, yeah. that's fine that's kind of fine we keep that going forever yeah, it's honestly made me a little more social yeah I agree. because i now i can have zoom meetings with people and i can call people and i and think text to people text or, people now yeah. like before i'd be like well i'm gonna see them when we <laughs> yeah, record yeah, yeah, yeah and it's like oh now i'm never gonna see this person again i better fire off a text Yeah, there is that. And I do like the term that's used, which is positive resilience. I really like that. And I'm not a positive person generally. So but like there's something, you know, it's kind of a bummer as well. And I like that. I like that. (laughs) It's kind of like, yeah, we I feel good. I mean, I don't feel good about the world, but I'm doing fine. So, okay. Yeah. If I was an extrovert, this would be a huge problem. I'm really not. Yeah. So let's talk about horror movies and how they have responded to social issues. I literally have in the notes, Andy ran about the term post horror for a bit before you do though, explain to people what post horror means. Oh, so post horror is a term that assholes use. (laughs) Agreed. And it doesn't really mean anything because here's to borrow a phrase. Here's the thing about post-horror. It's meaningless. It's a meaningless term. Would you say post-drama or post-comedy? No, because you can't because those are ongoing things. (laughs) They're not. It's not a movement. Horror is not a movement. Horror has been around since humans started speaking to each other. Since we started making things up and telling stories, horror has been there. And to think that there's a before and after is insane. And, and to the, think that, that post-horror means, people use it to mean socially relevant or addressing the issue. I mean, I guess that's literally what socially relevant means. Yeah, It, and it that, means socially relevant. That's kind of where we're going with this part of the podcast, because people use that term post-horror as if to imply, well, now we're all woke. So horror movies are speaking to social issues. And horror movies, not only have they always spoke to social issues, I would argue they've always, like almost exclusively, spoken to social issues. Well, there's the idea, and this will come up again, I'm sure, but there's the idea that art is not created in a void. You know, there's no such thing as an artistic vacuum. Everything is going to be socially relevant simply by the nature of existing in a world where there is political context, where there is social context. You can't create art that doesn't have some place in that. And I mean, I agree with that. I think that there are, of course, not exceptions necessarily, but things that apply a little less than others. Right. But to even beyond that, like just the idea that a genre in a medium that plays on the feelings and specifically the anxieties of human beings, to think that there can be socially irrelevant horror is bullshit. It wouldn't work. 
it wouldn't it doesn't work because one of the worst things that can happen when you go into a horror movie is you find out the premise you find out who the scary entity is and if you're not scared of it it's not the movie's not going to work yeah i mean and the different people are scared of different things different communities have different shared fears than others different there are things that are arguably universal across the species for the most part but it it just can't exist outside of it outside of a socially relevant context no art can and the implication that some new horror does that better than other horror it's just to me it says you don't know what you're talking about it says you don't watch horror movies and just as problematic for me as the other term that people use which is elevated horror again suggesting that horror of the past was not speaking on an elevated level which is also fucking stupid the only term that i really kind of like for this is prestige horror and that's only because there's a little bit of snark in the term itself it's kind of a read it's sort of like saying book smart it's like kind of like the term book smart it's a little bit of a backhanded compliment it's a little bit of like we're calling you this because you think this about yourself and you can apply that to films like rosemary's baby or the shining not the exorcist that's a whole other fucking thing unto itself but these films that set out to be socially relevant and consider themselves to be a part of apart from i should say the horror the rest of the horror genre and fandom picks up on this pretty easily like yeah jay baruchel recently released a movie where he was in the press he was saying stuff like well my horror movie is different than others and it's like nope ah, nope right there fuck you stop <laughs> stop you know and know i've the seen that talking about i've seen the movie he's talking about and no it's, it's not probably bad right where it's yeah, like it's not it's not terrible okay the, i can't even remember the name of it but i remember seeing it was a jay baruchel movie and being like that guy's making horror movies now okay but it was all right Yeah, I mean, even genre writers and stuff will sometimes say shit like, this movie's got a different portrayal of women than the horror genre is used to. And it's like, have you ever fucking watched one then? Like, you clearly are, you're talking out of your ass. And I just hate, fuck you, go home. Yeah, like even a movie like, weirdly, my father's favorite movie was I Spit on Your Grave. That You've told me this before, and I am... very fascinated by this fact he loved b horror movies he loved i spit on your grave he loved frankenhooker oh dude frankenhooker i'm sorry frankenhooker is an unimpeachable classic frankenhooker <laughs> he loved it rules. so much frankenhooker's so great he made my mom wait to go to the hospital when she was in labor because he was watching the 1972 horror film frogs Yeah. (laughs) And wanted to wait until. So I was delivered in a hallway of a hospital because my dad was like, when is frogs going to be on TV again? Wow. I got to watch this. I mean, that's that's a true fan right there. Yeah. That's a true fan. I'm interested and we'll get to it to hear your disagreements with this Time magazine article. We're going to reference. I mean, right off the bat. Well, I feel like they at least talk to a guy who seems like he gets it. Here's a quote. The guy's name is James Kendrick. He's a film and digital media professor at Baylor University. Congratulations on your NCAA tournament win, James Kendrick. Here's his quote. The horror genre has always been a highly socially attuned genre 
because it draws on what we're afraid of and what we're afraid of changes from era to era. Basic fears remain the same, but the specific elements of what we're afraid of ebb and flow at different times. Yeah, and that's more or less kind of what I just said in a way, but I agree with that. It's a little oversimplified, but I agree with it. And I could rant. I could literally rant for an hour probably about how much I hate the term (laughs) post-horror. But like, I don't dislike the article. It's just there's certain things that are like, eh, that's a common mistake or you didn't really know what you were talking about here. And it's just, it's written, it's obviously written by someone who doesn't, I'm not trying to gatekeep. That's the other thing. People get introduced to the genre and it's like, sure, go crazy. I'm just happy you're here. I'm happy you're enjoying this stuff. It's just when people make declarative statements about it that don't line up with facts is when I get a little like protective. But I'm not trying to be like, oh, you're not a true horror fan if you think this. Like, no, I'm not. I fuck those guys too. Yeah, one of the first examples he brings up is Night of the Living Dead, Yeah, which is a lot of people see it as kind of a critique on race relations in the United States. At the time, everything's fine now. Oh, yeah, we fixed it, remember, right? Yeah, we fixed everything. But (laughs) George Romero said that was all accidental at best and not intentional. Do you believe that? No, I I don't. And here's the thing. I, I think that when he says that, I think he's talking about specific imagery that lines up with the American conscience, how we receive the idea of the civil rights movement in a lot of ways. And some of that might have been accidental. But I also think this is the thing, again, it's just like you can't create art in a void. If you're setting out to create a piece of art that is important to you in any medium, if it's important to you, your values are going to come across in the film. And if your values are informed by political ideology or a critical eye on what's going on in the world, that's going to get into the work. That's why it, it kind of there's always this fight that goes on about like oh i don't like woke horror blah 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 and then the other side of it that's just like horror's always been aware and the, that's true but also it's like don't force it you're telling a story yeah. and trust the audience trust your allegory trust your heart when you're creating these things and i think that's what romero did and he cast dwayne jones that's a big part of why this film right has first, that, that he was reputation. the first black lead in a yeah. horror movie yeah, but Romero famously says he cast him because he was the best actor who auditioned, and that's that. Of course, that's true. That is very woke. That's a very woke <laughs> yeah, how thing ter- how- to say, especially back when that movie came out. Yeah, well, that's the thing, right? He could see past certain shit. And I think maybe in editing, it's one of those things where they realized, like, especially the the sequence over the end credits is very much like it's hard for me to see that that's an accident. Yeah, that had to be intentional to some degree. But we're going to talk about another film in a minute that I do feel a lot of the interpretations of it are are pretty accidental. But in, in Romero's case, I... I think that he wasn't being dishonest when he said that, but I also think he was maybe being a little too humble. Yeah. Before we get into the specific events that have influenced horror, one of the things I'm finding is it seems like people are really split on whether COVID is going to produce a ton of horror movies or if it will influence horror movies that much. And I actually feel like it won't because one, there will be some exhaustion from hearing people talk about COVID, but also it seems like a lot of the themes around COVID, if that's the way you want to put it, specifically like isolation and contagions, that's already been covered a whole bunch 
in horror movies. Yeah, I think we might see those themes being a little more foregrounded than they have been. But I mean, they've been foregrounded a lot anyway. So yeah, I'm with you. I think that it's not just that people don't want to talk about it anymore. It's also that it's a collective fear and a collective fear is always best represented by allegory. By metaphor. You know, we're going to see. I recently watched a panel of horror authors talking about the. Uh, the somebody asked them about the work that they were working on now and if it wasn't influenced in any way by the pandemic. And they all said that they had something in the works that was either lockdown themed or inspired by the pandemic. But they're also authors that are very gifted in the art of allegory. And I feel like it's going to be more that it's not going to be directly like there was a virus named COVID raging across the country. And I, you know, I don't think that will be the threat because I think that most people recognize, like we want to change it up. We, yeah, I could see it going more in the direction of the way things shook out after 9-11, where there there weren't like a lot of specific 9-11 movies, but there were definitely buildings falling mm-hmm. in every fucking movie well, you had for buildings- like five or six years after 9-11. Yeah, the horror genre in, in, in particular went very dark after 9-11 and got oh, yeah. really we'll, intense. We'll get to that. Holy shit. We sure shit. will. We sure will. But you also had films like Cloverfield and War of the Worlds. And even those were like years later, though. I think that you're right. I think we're going to see these themes reflected, but it will be in some maybe unexpected ways. Apart from the two films we're going to discuss later. Which we're going to talk about three. It's I think you said two because two of them are terrible. Two of them are terrible. Yeah. But and one is a fucking gem that should be in the Library of Congress. (laughs) Let's talk about some of the past crises that have influenced horror. I know this is the part in this article that you take issue with. I think the first part that I took issue with was when they said gory slashers of the Vietnam era, because there were no slasher movies in the Vietnam era. And gory is a relative term. That was the first moment where I was like, okay, this person, mm." again, I could go off on that for like half an hour and I'm not going to, I'm just (laughs) going to say that's the first thing that stood out to me. Let's talk about the great depression. I, One of the things that strikes me about their argument here is that the Great Depression coincides with this kind of golden age of horror movies where you get Dracula, Frankenstein, the mummy, Mm -hmm. the invisible man. And the article kind of argues, well, people were uncertain and we were all poor and that's why they were flocking to theaters. But also, couldn't it just be that sound was introduced to movies at that time? There were several things that happened at the time that Frankenstein and Dracula were made that like kind of created this situation. The Great Depression was one of them. It's not the whole picture. There's a lot more at work here. There's a lot right. more at work in what happened. I mean, first of all, Carl Lamley, like without him, you don't have any of this. And there were a lot of very specific circumstances that I think had to occur the way that they did. Arguably, I think that World War One has more to do with the golden age that we saw years later. But yeah, one of the things they mention in the article that I do agree with is after World War One, we as a country became way more isolationist. Mm-hmm. So all of the threats you see in horror movies after this are not only external threats, but they're kind of portrayed to be external threats from other countries. Like Dracula clearly was not American. Yeah, no, I mean, and even Dracula was written during a different time of fear 
of immigrants right. from Eastern Europe in England. But this was, yeah, World War One. Pretty much a lot of the early monsters are just metaphors for World War One and and the, the horror yeah. that we had just gone through. I mean, Frankenstein is like, show that to a World War One vet, and it's going to mean something to them. What about the atomic bomb? They bring that up in this article. And I feel like not just horror, but a lot of things in the world in general changed after the atomic bomb. But one of the things you see is stuff like Godzilla, where this previously harmless thing comes into contact with nuclear power. Mm -hmm. And now it's huge and dangerous in Godzilla specific because there were a number of these beasts from 20,000 fathoms actually before Godzilla it was kind of an inspiration for Godzilla but Godzilla specifically also has a national identity that had just been wounded in war tied up in that as well and Godzilla is such a powerful film but yeah as it says previously harmless things became giant and scary right because of nuclear waste or weapons for an interesting example of the inversion of that the Incredible Shrinking Man, directed by Jack Arnold, is a good one to check out. And hey, the latest episode of Ghoul School features a discussion about The Incredible Shrinking Man. There you go. Check it out. Check it out. What about McCarthyism? This seems like one of the parts you take <laughs> issue with. This is Because this is... you're right that Invasion of the Body Snatchers is often portrayed as a response to the threat of communism. And you disagree with that. I I disagree. I think it's... It is true and it's not true because it also has been used several times as an example of a reflection of our fears regarding McCarthyism and the response to a perceived communist threat in the United States. And here's the thing about Invasion of the Body Snatchers is that you can argue till your face is blue about either side. But this is one of those occasions where everyone involved, with the exception of Don Siegel, who even Don Siegel, the director, when approached about it, never actually said, oh, it's communism. He talked about the threat of conformity. And I'm sure that's what Daniel Mainwaring and Jack Finney and Kevin McCarthy would have said as well. They all insist that this was meant to be apolitical and meant to be socially relevant about the ideas of the threats of conformity and of people that you love changing without you really being able to keep track of it. It can be interpreted a number of different ways. The thing is, Don Siegel was kind of a reactionary right-wing guy. You can He directed Dirty Harry. Um, Daniel Mainwaring was a leftist, possibly a socialist himself, who, depending where you believe, was either blacklisted or worked as a front for a blacklisted writer. So he himself would have had stake in the idea of it being a McCarthyist parable as opposed to warning of the threats of communism. But this is one of those films where it's been argued both sides. No one really really knows. And that's because it's such a vague allegory. There are things you can pick out of it and ascribe it to either side. But the fact is, is that it's a fear of conformity. It's a fear of losing your humanity. And you can say that about any ideology you disagree with, you know, if you've got enough time to make the case. Yeah. And it almost kind of seems like the first example of what they talk about next in the article. One more thing, though, about Invasion of the Body Snatchers is when it was released, it was pretty much ignored critically. So retrospectively applying a meaning to it doesn't necessarily mean it meant anything in the 1950s when it was released because it was kind of an ignored film. Like a lot of horror films, it, it had its time, it was ignored, and then it got brought back. Yeah, and it seems like it could have been... The first example of what they talk about next, which is the Vietnam War era, and you get all of these horror movies where the threat 
is internal. It's in your own home. It's the people you know. And they bring up movies like Psycho and Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist. But it seems like Invasion of the Body Snatchers was actually the first. So maybe that movie was just ahead of its time because it came out in an era when that wasn't the threat in horror movies. Yes, I actually do think it was a little bit of ahead of its time. And it had a little more of the 60s on its mind than what we call the 50s. You know, I, I do think it was part of that. So now because the Vietnam era was problematic after that, Everything was fine until 9-11. Yeah, we That's, fixed it. We fixed Vietnam. Yeah. Look, we look, okay, we kicked ass in Vietnam. All right. Okay. Then we got Reagan in office who fixed everything. Okay. Everything. Took care of it. We had as a nation, are you kidding me? We had nothing to be scared of. Yeah, one of the things that doesn't come up in this article that I'm wondering if you have any insight on is the satanic panic. Yeah. Like, how would that not have informed 80s horror movies it informed my entire upbringing exactly the 80s gets ignored a lot not so much anymore we've kind of finally circled back to rediscovering the 80s especially in the horror genre it was ignored for a while i remember in the 90s and even the early 2000s we didn't talk about the 80s as much it was like oh horror got relevant in the 70s and was great and then we don't really talk about the 80s because it's people think that again they think that the only politically relevant films in the 80s were the slasher movies and they always say oh that's just reagan values you're wrong it's not what they are that'll come up on a season of ghoul school pretty soon but i think well i think it speaks to one of the like kids getting abducted wasn't really a thing we ever thought about until the 80s serial killers like we had some knowledge of serial killers before that but in the late 70s with ted bundy like that's when that really takes off and it seems like that's an obvious parallel to me is this lone psycho who could show up at any minute to do the worst possible things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We That became a fear that we all shared. And yeah, the satanic panic, the idea of a hidden counterculture society that didn't quite get stamped out, that still exists out there somewhere, and they could be you. They, I mean, it is uh, in some ways a reflection of the fears represented in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, the idea that people that you trust with your kid or whatever could be a part of some cult or could be some kind of violent pervert or whatever. We did see that in the 80s. Those fears were represented and they weren't always reactionary. They weren't always, sometimes they did have a little more on their mind and there are, again, I could... (laughs) There's another subject that I could be like, let's hijack this and go this way with it. But I won't. Yeah, the 80s kind of gets ignored, especially the satanic panic element. Yeah, thinking about the satanic panic makes me wonder if we should be talking about whether there are going to be any QAnon horror movies. Oh, those are coming for (laughs) sure. They have to be because QAnon is our decade's satanic panic. We're kind of in a period right now in the genre where folk horror has made a return through different elements. And you can, here's the thing, you can say post-folk horror because it's a subgenre. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it's, yeah. it's a subgenre. It's a smaller part. There are, it, the same way you would say like post-hardcore or whatever when talking about music. Right. But folk horror is kind of having a renaissance. And in turn, some other side subgenres and tropes and themes are kind of making a, a return. And I think we're going to see some QAnon related stuff, some more cult stuff that yeah. might be more about ideology than, you know, it's just that anything it else. will 
be produced by the My Pillow Guys production company or oh, something God. like that, and we'll all well, just we, dismiss it. That's another thing is that reactionary horror does exist and doesn't. Sadly, we kind of had a reactionary horror boom not too long ago that I'm hoping is dying down. Is that the reaction to 9-11 and the war on terror? Because well, that's what I... There's that. Let's talk about that next, because one of the things that I feel like I never even thought about this, but the Time Magazine article brings it up. As soon as 9-11 happens and we as a country start debating whether torture is a good thing or a bad thing, torture porn becomes a thing in horror movies for yeah. like six or seven years after that. Yeah, we get and kind I, of a extreme horror. What's in the literary world called extreme horror yeah. kind of gets brought into the mainstream in the film medium. You know, some of it's good. I'm not going to lie. Some extreme oh, yeah. horror is great. The first Hostel is fucking great. Eh. Oh, come on. Eh. It's, uh, it's very you know, good. I like the last like 20 minutes or so. Fine. Yeah, <laughs> I, I actually don't know if I buy this idea because the people being tortured in these movies are not the bad people. And there are people who bring this up and they they say the same thing about like alien movies where it's like, oh, the government is just trying to soften us up to be ready for that alien invasion. And there are people who argue, oh, that torture porn era, that was just the government softening us up to accept torture. But it's not like the bad people are being tortured in these movies. It's the good people. So I don't know if I buy this example as a response to 9-11. Yeah, I think the exception to that might be the Saw movies. Yeah, where yeah, it's that's kind true. of meted out in a little a little more ambiguously. And even the hostile movies, it's arguable that like some of those characters are like it. Eh. But that read is often, I think, just a resurrection of the old idea of the criticism of slasher movies where it's like, I don't relate to any of these characters. You're just watching kids die and cheering it on. And it's like, okay, maybe if you're if you have a problem. But <laughs> <laughs> I think it varies from film to film. I do think that there was a national obsession with it, especially, you know, this also coincides with stuff like viral videos of beheadings and yeah. and things like that and Abu Ghraib and a whole lot of other things <laughs> that were a part of our national obsessions as well at the time. And I think there's a relationship. I think there are parallels. I don't know if it's consequential necessarily. I don't yeah. know if we started wanting to watch torture because we started wanting to watch torture in real life. I think it in some ways, especially in maybe the Hills Have Eyes remake, the torture element, the extreme horror beats are used to say, hey, we are going through some hard things and we're going to have to toughen up to survive it. Yeah. And I think that's a little bit more to the point. The Hills Have Eyes remake is very good. It fucking rips, man. By the way, it's so <laughs> fucking, fucking good. fucking rips. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's talk about the last thing they mention in this article as having influenced horror. And this, I think, is 
obviously very correct, which is the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter. And I'm just going to put it out there. The best Me Too horror movie is the Black Christmas remake. Adam, stop. Just joking, America. That is the worst fucking movie <laughs> it's so bad. ever made. It's so bad. And I it don't want to be an asshole about it because I actually like... <sighs> The director's previous film, Always it's Shine, so it's great. But yeah, the Black Christmas remake, it's trying to do too much. Which... Yeah, yeah. There have been some good ones. I liked mm-hmm. Get Out. Oh, Get, Did I you lo- like... Get Out's amazing. Yeah, Get Out Get Out is a classic. Us? Yeah! It's, it's got a good first two acts. It's... I appreciate the message, yeah, but I, the I execution like isn't great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. it's just the third act. It, it falls apart in the third act. And listen, if we're talking Black Lives Matter movies, there are lots of others, but go fucking watch Tales from the Hood 3. It's so good. I can't believe I still haven't seen it. As a Tales from the Hood fan, I I really need to see it. It is one of my fave Tales from the Hood movies. It's excellent. Spike Lee was one of the producers on it, so it really does address things that are happening right now with not just Black Lives Matter, but black people in general as for me two horror movies black christmas was terrible i didn't like midsummer again i could talk for an hour about everything i despise about midsummer but i won't yeah i i appreciate i appreciate the intention yeah i like what he was trying to do my favorite me too horror movie so far has been a movie that came out in i think 2020 called lucky you ever seen lucky yeah not a fan really yeah i saw it last year when shutter on halloween shutter was they screened it on their live streaming channel on their app and mm. here's the thing about it it's well done you know i'm not going to it's part of this this film movement that my friend philip and i who i am starting a new podcast with we have dubbed it this movement or subgenre that we call hard allegory and that is what lucky is it's like yeah. it's, it's like mother or there's other films that fit into this mother's the first one i think of all the time can um, i shout out former unpops podcast host cindy aravina yes. who has the greatest take on mother i never understood that movie and then we did a podcast about it and she explained it and i was like Oh yeah, it still sucks, but that makes sense. Yeah, so that's my that's my view of most hard allegory movies. It's like, oh, I get yeah. it, and I respect what it was hoping for, but I'm not into it. It's not for me. I can't, you know. I, I watch surreal shit. I'll watch experimental stuff. I'll watch things that are out there. I love David Lynch. You know, I like yeah. George Cushar. But when you're making a narrative film, if you go too hard into the allegories, where that's the entire point in the entire world, I just lose interest. And that to I'm, me is what Lucky is. I, and I like. Again, I like Brea Grant. I think it's well made. It's just, it's the kind of thing that bores me. Yeah, I liked Lucky a lot. I thought the premise was very clever. If people haven't seen it, it's like Groundhog Day or Happy Death Day, but instead of the same day happening over and over, every day ends the same way, which is a guy shows up to try and kill this woman and she has to fight him off every fucking night. And... I thought it did a good job of being an allegory for what women go through when it comes to sexual assault and rape, mm-hmm. where they're not really believed. And I, I thought it covered all that stuff really well. I don't want to say, uh, you know, I, I don't have, this is the thing with Lucky, I don't have strong feelings about it. I just, I would rather see it a real world context of that, you know, or a supernatural yeah. element. Because to me, when it's all sort of theoretical, 
there's nothing for me to latch on to as a, as a horror fan. If you like Lucky, great. I prefer Revenge. Revenge is my favorite. Revenge the, is great. Uh, I, I love it. It's so, it's so great. Yeah. So let's talk about some actual COVID horror movies. So first, let's talk about the crown jewel of COVID <laughs> horror movies. Likely the only good one we'll get. Not only the only good one, I think this might have been my favorite movie of 2020 and that is host this movie was so fucking good and i was so surprised that it was as good as it was it was i think the first covid horror movie and it was just so much better than not only everything that came after it but the movies that came after it seemed like they involved so much more work Mm -hmm. and effort and this was just so good I don't know what to say about it other than see it because it does what horror movies should do it's in the same camp as Night of the Living Dead and you know the smaller films like that that you don't see coming that yeah do something very well and very simple and do it so well that it seems a lot more complex. And yeah. And the, one of the craziest things about it, it was made by a guy who had done nothing but short films before this. And I read an interview where he was like, yeah, I was just going to play the last of us during COVID and just come out the other end and start working again. But I got so bored that I had to make asshole. something asshole making the rest I of this know. Look bad. <laughs> like just, Oh, I might as well do something. How about I make the best horror movie of 2020? I wrote, I wrote a script for a short right before the pandemic hit. And I was like, I'm going to shoot this this summer. And then no, I absolutely am not. And then I was just like, okay, well, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to, I'm literally going to play last of us. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and then fucking, okay. Thanks a lot, Rob Savage. Yeah. It all came about because he filmed a short film before this where he hopped on a zoom call with friends who none of them had any idea that he was filming a short film and he just pretended to hear strange sounds in his attic and he went to investigate them while everyone else on the zoom call watched and he posted that on the internet and it went viral and he was like oh I'll make a movie out of it. Crazy. I mean, that's where the impulse comes from. That's where the idea to make a horror movie comes from. It's that simple. It's like, I'm going to, I'm going to prank somebody. I'm going to scare somebody. I'm going to play a trick. And then you just, you just flesh that out and it it works. Blair Witch Project, you know? And the things that had to happen for this movie to work, like this was in the thick of COVID. So everyone in this movie basically had to learn how to do their own stunts. They had to learn how to set up practical effects, their own lighting. They had to film themselves. And all of that sounds like a recipe for disaster. And this movie works so fucking well. Mm -hmm. And he had the idea and it was delivered to Shudder in the span of 12 weeks. That's not going to make me feel better. It should make everyone (laughs) living in Los Angeles for creative purposes feel bad. Yeah. I I mean, it made me leave. That's why I left. (laughs) It's yeah, it's, it's crazy. It, and it was so good. Like, Shutter's subscriptions skyrocketed yep. after this. Like, if you haven't seen Host, you're I mean, you're it, fucking up. It has the benefit of being the first to the the first to the arena. Like we said, it's the first quote unquote COVID horror movie. But it also has the benefit of not being about COVID necessarily, right? And not really hitting us in the face with that idea. It came out so quick that my expectations were very low going into it. I, it wasn't my favorite film of 2020. 
but it was the biggest surprise to me of 2020. Oh, definitely. And, and yeah. that's a distinction unto itself. Like I was really not expecting anything from it and it really delivered. And I still have a couple nitpicky things where it's like, oh, I would have liked to have seen more of that or more of that. But also its strength is how short it is and how quickly it moves and how you never really have time to say, I mean, it's, I'd rather be left wanting more, you know, and this film oh, does, yeah. does that. Just, it's one of those movies that I didn't want to end. Like it was yeah. so good. Oh yeah. And I, I actually like that. It's so short. It's kind of like, they dude, s- pay for the full zoom so that we can yeah. get the longer version. of this. They stuck to the fucking premise, yeah. which was we're on a free zoom call. So once it starts, the shit's going to end in 40 minutes mm-hmm. and it does. And I fucking love that yeah. so much. Yeah. And it really do some really interesting novel, unique things with emerging technology stuff with app stuff. Like the it's filter stuff. The filter stuff is, is brilliant. So, it's, it's, it's really genius. Like it's so good. I don't want to give it away. No, I'm yeah. That's again, whenever someone brings up host, it's like, I don't know what to say other than see it unless it's just two people geeking out about it. Cause I do. It is great. It's one of those things that does hold up on a rewatch. And one of the things I like about it compared to the other terrible movies we're going to talk about next is Yes, it's set during when COVID is happening, but it doesn't try to make COVID scarier than it is. It's already scary and we get that. So these are just people working within that framework as opposed to, oh, it's 2026 and now we're on COVID 64 and it's 70% lethal. It's like, no, COVID's scary enough. I don't need you to give COVID more rules. I don't need you to tell me COVID can only be killed by garlic and sunlight. You know, we get it. (laughs) It's already scary. It's already a monster. This thing is smart to give you a different threat and to make that the focus and to just use everything else as a backdrop. And in a way, the focus can be seen to be somewhat of a metaphor for the other problems with COVID that we're going through. The isolation, the withdrawal, you know, the being crazy, (laughs) the COVID brain shit. Like, it's all in there without ever using the word COVID in that way. Unlike the next movie I want to talk about. (laughs) There was a movie I saw recently where I made a statement, I will not see a movie worse than that this year. And I was wrong because I watched Safer at Home. Safer at Home. You and I both paid money for this. I Yeah, by the way, I am invoicing you for this. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, the only difference is I'm going to reimburse you on next month's You're invoice. You're going to pay for it twice. Meanwhile, I have to just live with this shame forever. Uh, well, you, you did it what? for work. I watched it for fun. We can keep other people from watching it, though, and that's important. <laughs> One of the most fascinating things about this movie that I think really speaks to I don't know, the same problems with like American Idol voting or presidential voting. The Rotten Tomatoes score, 8% critic score, 73% audience score. What the fuck movie are people watching? It's got to be some kind of like farm or something that they've bought. <laughs> you know, they've got to, they have to have like Russian operatives on this or something because there is no fucking way. I'm not that cynical to believe that 73% of the people that saw this movie enjoyed it. The one thing it does that I like is the version of the future they're working in seems a little more realistic than the next movie we'll talk about, which is Songbird. Okay. But in this version of the future, martial law has been declared. 
There's curfews. And if you're out after that, if you're caught, you'll be taken to a detention center. And that seems like a thing that could happen. But what I also hate about it is they use that to kind of cheat on the premise. Like it's not a lockdown movie once you go outside. And I get that there's some tension like, oh, if the police see us, they'll take us to a detention center. Well, send someone to a detention center so I can see that. That sounds very interesting. But the way this movie is executed, they can't do that. You would have to sneak your phone into a detention center. That's the other thing about this movie is it's always cheating. It's always cheating. I want to be clear. I don't think you can rightly even refer to this or the next movie as horror movies. I do not think they have. Yeah. They might have one foot in the genre, but they don't have space in here. And especially because this movie, I believe, to me, is the opposite of hard allegory. If there is one where it's like, there's no threat. It's just humans doing stupid fucking things. And even the threat, if you go just pull up the description of the movie, they make it out to be, well, all these people are on a Zoom call. It's one of those uh, Zoom hangouts and they all decide to take ecstasy, but it turns out not to be ecstasy. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, that sounds fascinating. And they let that thread go like 15 yeah, minutes but, into the movie. The but also, what is it? I mean, they keep telling you, like characters keep saying, I don't know, man, I'm freaking out because this drug's not ecstasy. You never figure out what it is. They never really seem nope. like they're playing. It's it's a lot of telling and not showing, which is a terrible sin in this genre as far as I'm concerned. There's never any consequences. Every time any kind of trouble or obstacle comes up, the characters just sort of luck their way out of it. Like when the dude drives through a military checkpoint and isn't bothered, I'm like, wait, what? And there's constantly... Yeah characters saying whoo that was close and it's like what what was close what are you talking about and the guy that's do anything driving around looking for the other guy during all of that i was like didn't you just take a drug that's supposed to freak you out beyond all comprehension like how are you able to just still drive significant other says that to him right? You can't drive. You're fucked up on drugs. And he's like, okay, but I'm gonna. And then the other guy too even sits and he's like, I got to come down from this. And he waits like literally 30 seconds and then drives off. Like it's just, yeah, it's just a lot of this like, well, now this is the way it is. So accept it audience. It doesn't earn any of this shit. Like you said, the world that it takes place in is kind of interesting. It even has some horror tropes that are, that I like seeing recontextualized like this, like, you know, the doomsayer character, the prude, who's like, we shouldn't do this, guys. That's yeah. kind of an interesting way, although I do think that couple is kind of written like a caricature. There's stuff like that, whatever. The point is, there's some interesting ideas, but it's just the way it's executed. It needed to be in the hands of someone else. It's too much drama mashed in without any of it being about anything. And yeah, the drug thing, look, I like drugs. I'm a pro-drug guy. Nothing sounds more miserable to me than a Zoom drug session. <laughs> With friends Especially from high school. ecstasy. Yeah. Like when those people like start you, fucking. You want to watch every- everyone start fucking yeah, when those, on when a that Zoom couple call? couple starts fucking and everyone else is like, whoa, guys. It's like, wait, what did you think was going to happen? You took <laughs> ecstasy. If you just started fucking on this Zoom call right now, I'd be like, holy shit, Andy's fucking. I'm going to watch all of this. <laughs> It's amazing. I appreciate that. And they were all put out by it. It's like, that's not how you would react no, on drugs. It's just, there's, I can't say anything really kind about this film other than some of the ideas are interesting. But also you see everything coming a mile away. Like, I knew how it was going to end the second yeah, that, time they cut to Chekhov's COVID corpse. 
There is absolutely no reason to keep the live stream of that body going that, unless it's going to lead to something. pay off. And that's yeah. the, the thing about a lot of these characters where it's like half these characters aren't necessary because half them don't do anything. Half of them just literally sit there watching it and watch happen as yeah. audience members. Unlike host. Unlike host where there's always something going on. Everyone is impacted by what happens mm-hmm. in host. <laughs> that's the other thing and at the end great. of this movie. Everyone just turns off <laughs> things and it's yeah. like wait are we supposed to accept that they're dead or something it's like you're not even gonna try to call an ambulance yeah. i got pissed at this movie right off the bat because not only is it about covid which i don't want to fucking talk about anymore but it shows us trump and it's like already i'm like done i don't want to fucking see that guy i don't want to hear his voice fuck you for putting him in your movie both this movie and the next movie have audio of like news broadcasts over like six production cards at the front which is just like come on don't do that stop it let's talk about that next movie this is the last one i watched i watched it last night it's called songbird it is better than safer at home here's my problem i don't believe that the idea for this movie came about because of COVID. I think that is a story we are being fed so Michael Bay doesn't get any heat for capitalizing on COVID. Because COVID is almost never mentioned, and when it is, I'm like, they added that after the fact. Yeah, it's weird. I definitely think it's a script that previously existed that somebody just kind of like threw some stuff into. Like they're barely wearing actual masks. That's very rare. Like both of these films also, I think were produced very early on because there's no mention of vaccines in either one, really. I think there's maybe one mention in right. one of them, but about the vaccine not working anymore or something. There's very little mention of it. You don't really ever see anyone wearing like the kinds of masks that we wear now or that we have been for the last year. Safer at Home really tips its hand because it's like two years earlier and it's the six month mark and everyone's celebrating the end of COVID. And this is its smug little like, haha, fuck you, feel worse kind of thing. Yeah. And it's just like this one, this is smug. Two, it's cruel and unnecessary. But also, this is already outdated. We've already been in this shit for a year before it got fixed. So this is dated. Like, we can't buy any of this shit. And both films do that, and they kind of recontextualize the rules. Like, even in Songbird, there's still stuff about, like, it getting on your clothes. And it's like, that hasn't been a thing for a while. What are you talking about? Yeah, that doesn't happen. They have to say And sanitizing all the packages. Yeah, no. It's like every apartment has to have that UV ray box now. Like, that wouldn't happen. Rich people would have that. And poor people would just have to get their packages and hope they're not infected. Yeah, it's... And that's a thing I didn't like. They that thing where every home has this UV ray protection for any packages. It's just the rich people's homes. No, no. Because remember his girlfriend who he's trying to save has that same thing. Wait, does she? And Yes. Oh. And that's what I think is one of the problems of this movie is they portray the government as just legitimately evil but also who put those boxes in all the homes that had to be the government yeah i mean it's also it's also unbelievable that like the lester gets thing which is like postmates slash amazon in this world is just craig robinson and a scrappy team of friends like no that's amazon and postmates it's two giant evil corporations and that's who would be in charge of that not craig robinson and some friends yeah amazon is the cockroaches of business it's never going to die there are already uh, horror at least episodes about amazon 
Oh yeah. There was that Philip K. Dick series that was on Amazon that I didn't like, but also the second episode with Janelle Monet is basically a critique of Amazon. Huh. I haven't seen it. I think it's called Electric Dreams. It's very bad. Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. The okay, second yeah. episode. It's an anthology series. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the second episode's interesting. It's about Amazon, I mean, but I liked this movie better. It's got a nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes as opposed to eight percent. And here's the thing So clearly it's better. I would give this maybe a fifteen percent, but I also gotta take Safer at Home down to like a three percent for that to feel good. Right. This movie is better because it actually invests in creating a world that it puts you in with characters and it feels like a movie. That's the other yeah. thing is that I think I see in my notes, I was like at Safer at Home, I was like, oh, this feels like the CW version of Host. Like yeah, the, the acting is bad. The dialogue is bad. None of it works. And in the this- star power though, the cast in this, oh, there's in so Sunbird, many. The cast is great. See, that's the thing. The script here isn't great. But it has some good elements. It's at least been written. Like, that's the thing. It feels there are beats, there are payoffs and setups. There are clever little things here and there. And the dialogue's bad. There's literally a line at the end where someone's like, we weren't just delivering packages. We were delivering hope, which is like, (laughs) wow. That is maybe the worst part of the movie. But it at least has, yeah, these performances, I think, are elevating the material a little bit. Like, the dialogue is mostly yeah. bad, but these actors are all doing a good job. Paul Walter Hauser is great. Right? He's, <laughs> He's great in so great. everything. Yeah, yeah. He's good in everything. But even the leads in this are good. Peter Stormare. Like, I love that character of, like, the sanitation department guy who used to okay. drive a garbage truck being this, like, megalomaniacal Jack the Ripper type villain. But, you know, there there's some choices there that I don't agree with. But, like, he does a good job because it's Peter he, Stormare. <laughs> he does a great job because you're right. He's Peter it's kind Stormare. kind of a Terry Gilliam-ish idea, I think. Fucking amazing. But I also didn't really get what his motivation was. Like, I know he explains it at the end where he's just like, hey, if you had all this power, wouldn't you oh, yeah. do no. anything you want? No, that made no sense, and it needed a lot more. Yeah, it- I didn't understand why he was as bad as he was or why the government would just let him continue to be as bad as he was. No, and again, it's not great. It's not well written, but these performances are like, I'm like, okay, Peter Stormer, you sold it. Like, I have notes, but... That's fine. Even the Craig leads, Robinson Craig is good. Robinson is good. Alexander Daddario is great. Bradley Whitford. I mean, I- for some reason, seeing his name in the credits, I was like, Jesus Christ, is he this broke? <laughs> I mean, he's an asshole. I don't know. Yeah. I think cut this if you want, but it's not unbelievable to me to think that there's a young woman in Los Angeles who has video that Bradley Whitford doesn't want to go public, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's not... That's Why would I cut that? I have no problem believing that. You think Bradley so. Whitford's going to sue us? <laughs> I don't know. Demi Moore, though. Demi Moore. Demi Moore's great yeah. in this. Terrific. Yeah. Paul Walter Hauser's great. Craig Robinson yeah. is great. Yeah, it's got a good cast, and they know what they're doing. This was also the first movie filmed in L.A. during COVID. Which also makes it, like, really irresponsible, probably. Yes. <laughs> 100% agree with that. I mean, I'm not going to try to sell anyone to see this movie. Like, fuck this. Fuck Michael Bay. Fuck Platinum Dunes. Yeah, that's the uh, it's a Michael yeah. Bay movie. Yeah. And I just I really don't believe this narrative that, oh, COVID happened and we had the idea for this movie. We're not capitalizing. But I feel like the script existed and yeah. they were like, oh, let's let's 
tweak this yeah. into a COVID movie. The director of it is someone I'm not a fan of. I'd seen some of his previous stuff. I never enjoyed it. This is actually kind of a surprise coming from him just because it's sunnier than his other things. And it's a little, it seems to be trying to have some fun. Yeah. And I don't know. Of the two, it's the only one I'd watch again. Not that I want to watch either again. It's definitely the better of the two. Yeah. It leans into its dystopian sci-fi world. It has a little more fun with it. It does. I mean, the, the boomer character, <laughs> that guy boomer that just kind of comes oh, out. Yeah. I mean, that alone is like, oh, this movie has a Babu freak. I love it. It's bad though. And I have like LA notes about both of them, you know, like Songbird. I'm like, <laughs> nobody's favorite theater is the Chinese. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Man's Chinese. Like say Arclight. Yeah. Or the but Vista. I guess, like show us you actually yeah. watch movies in LA. I like the Egyptian. I mean, it's my I, favorite I used theater to love in the LA. Egyptian. I fuck with the Egyptian. Yeah. yeah. There's also shit in, there's one thing in Safer at Home where I'm like, nobody, oh yeah, when at the end where he's like, I'm on Sunset. She's like, where? I don't know. Sunset and something. And it's like, bullshit. It's Sunset. Yeah. You've got a landmark. You can yeah, point to Yeah, you know where some, you are. Yeah, you can be like, if oh, you're on by Sunset. The, it's the Sunset Junction or, or yeah. some, there's something you can point to on Sunset and be like, I know where I fucking am. So there are some COVID movies coming up one of them will have gone up this last friday before this episode yeah and i'm excited i'm actually excited about this one this is this is why i wanted you on this episode because i found an article that said ben wheatley who is a director has a covid movie coming out and i know nothing about it and when i sent you these notes you were like oh yeah ben wheatley's thing comes out friday and i really want to watch it what is it about that's the thing. I don't really know what it's about. I don't want to know. Oh, wow. I don't really want to know what it's about. It looks like it has some folk horror elements, some post-apocalyptic elements, maybe some cult horror elements to it. But I haven't watched the trailer and I haven't read anything about it just because this is one of those things where I want to go in cold because yeah. I really I really love Ben Wheatley as a filmmaker. Like, Tell people what other movies he has made. Well, he made Sightseers. He's got a thing with Army Hammer in it that people seem to like i think it's called rebecca he did free fire which is an action crime movie but there's kill list kill list i really love by him and sightseers is great and when i was watching safer at home i started thinking i was like has there ever been a good drug horror movie because i Mm. like it's it sounds like it'll be good but like i don't like climax I don't like shrooms, really. And then I thought, oh, Field in England. Field in England is a drug horror movie that Ben Wheatley directed, and it's great. What was the movie? It took place at like a dance studio? That's Climax. Cli- is that Climax? Yeah. yeah. It, look, it's, it's... It was fine. I love the premise. The, pre- and then the premise is it great. it didn't pay off. It, the premise is great. It's well choreographed. It's well shot. But ultimately, it felt sort of racist. It does, like that's so. When I walked out of climax, I was like, "This is my review." Gaspar Noé did mushrooms once and is scared of black people. Yeah, because it definitely one hundred percent. The film for sure feels racist, and like Safer at Home, feels like it was written by a fucking narc. Yeah, it definitely yeah. has a little moralizing in it. The dance stuff is really cool. Yeah, but also it's just like justify those stakes to me outside of a drug party, and it doesn't work. And yeah. There's stuff I like about it, but ultimately I'm like, meh, I get to continue not admiring this director's work. I just don't Our, think it's on par with something like Field in England. Do we at least know the name of the Ben Wheatley movie called, and where it's... It's called In the Earth, and it. I think it's just going to be 
in theaters and on demand on Friday. And I'm really excited like because I've managed to not watch a trailer and not read much about it. Like I've seen headlines about when it played at whatever festival it played at. I can't remember. I think it was South by Southwest. What about Neil Blomkamp making a COVID horror movie, which is all he is for people who don't know the guy who made the timeless classic Chappie, okay. which I did actually Chappie's like. Chappie's not bad. <laughs> yeah. Chappie's not the thing about, I feel for Blomkamp. I feel so bad for Neil Blomkamp because District 9, okay, there are some legitimate criticisms of the central racial allegory in that film that are fair. But that movie that rules. That movie fucking rules. Yeah, and, it does. I mean, it's honestly one of my favorite science fiction films. Yeah, I think it was speaking to apartheid. Oh, so it's not absolutely. like- it's a, it's a, it's it's not refugees. the worst allegory, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah, well, it's that whole thing with like, what's that bright? I hated bright yeah, so it's, much. It's that where we start saying like, oh, this mythical creature is black people or whatever. Like that is problematic. Right. But in District 9, it's like, this is kind of what science fiction has always done in a way. If your storytelling and your plotting is about the subject rather than the theme, I think it's workable. Yeah. Anyway, I love District 9. I really did not like Elysium. I wanted to. No, and then Chappie was no. okay, but it's also like, I wish I could have seen his alien movie that he was doing or his Halo movie, like anything else. So like one hand, I'm excited for a new movie from Neil Blomkamp and a new opportunity for me to kind of reassess him as a filmmaker. On the other hand, it's like, uh, I hope it's not too COVID-y. What if it's just robots catching COVID? I'm in, I'm in, I'm fucking in then. Yeah, I'm all for that. Yeah. That's how we get rid of the robot uprising yeah, we give the robots COVID. covid yeah it's a government plot <laughs> i think that's our episode yeah that was i mean hey andy i like talking to you about this stuff this was a really good episode oh thanks and i'm glad thank you for doing it i'm glad i, got I appreciate it. it there is i'm glad you showed up for this horror movie episode i remember oh. once <laughs> i tried I, I i booked you for a horror movie episode with dave wait and it was just me and Dave Waite trying to fight our way through a horror movie. I was movie so upset about that because <laughs> I love Dave Waite so much. And of course, I, I love horror movies and I will talk about horror movies fucking whenever. So like the fact that I forgot that it was at that time, I was just like, ah, oh, man, <laughs> I, that still haunts me. <laughs> he just all the way forgot. Yeah, it was great. Completely forgot. <laughs> like I showed up for the other recording we were doing. And Dave Waite was like, where were you, man? And I'm like, ah, fuck, I, <laughs> I totally forgot. <laughs> Do you have anything to plug before we get out of here? Besides Ghoul School, check out Ghoul School on the Unpops Network. If you enjoyed this episode, holy shit, will you like Ghoul School? Yeah, you'll love it. Check out Bunk 237. It's my friend's podcast, Robin and Tiet. And sometime they let me on to do a segment. And I have a lot of fun doing it. And coming soon, not sure exactly when, but some recordings have been done. Some editing is underway for Look Good for the Boys, a horror gossip podcast. <laughs> and if you have no fucking idea what that means, well, keep an eye out for it because it's I it's the most fun I've been having outside of this episode, of course. Of course, of course. But yeah. it's the, it's some of the most fun I've had recording ever and I'm really excited to start putting episodes out. I'm excited to hear that. One network's going to be on. You got a network for I mean, I was thinking we're still in talks, but uh, I mean, if you want, I mean, 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 I m
and promote it to the people. And I just didn't mm-hmm. want to assume. <laughs> You're a talent. <laughs> How long can we talent. keep this voice up? Do you think? Yeah, I think for the rest of the I podcast. Think I'm just gonna talk like this until I die. You can follow me at Adam Todd Brown on Twitter and Instagram. That's the other one. Follow the show at Unpops on Twitter, Unpops.podcast on Instagram, and patreon.com slash unpops or unpopsnetwork.supercast.tech. You can get bonus episodes of all our stuff. I think that's it. Andy. Andy. <laughs> Let's get out of here. Say goodbye. Uh, look out for Look Good for the Boys, horror gossip podcast with Philip Johnson and Andy Sell. Uh, goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. We love you. Bring a blood object to Bristol Street. Bring a blood object to Bristol Street. I'm